about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord freewill offerings for all the work the Lord, through Moses, had commanded them to do. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. And he has given both him and Aholiab, son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, and weavers, all of them master craftsmen and designers. So Bezalel, Aholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, The people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more, because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Uh, Hi everyone, I'm Ben. I'll be reading us our second reading tonight, which is John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, and that can be found on page 1049 of the Pew Bibles. John chapter 1, starting at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Oop, sorry, just change lecterns. Well, as I said, we uh, come this evening to the last in our sermon series on the book of Exodus. Um, Let's pray as we think about the part of God's word we just read. Father, speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit. 
that we may know and delight in your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let me begin by asking a question. What would you say are the deepest longings of our culture? The things we most aspire to and hope for from life? Uh, There are probably lots of answers, actually, but let me suggest two that I think are pretty dear to our hearts, Uh, certainly to most of the people I meet and chat to. First, we long to contribute to something significant. Uh, We want to be able to put our hand to something that matters. I think this is a deep longing for many of us. We want to be a part of and to be putting our efforts into something that matters. Some of us try to fulfill this longing in our actual work and the job we get. We seek jobs that we think are significant and meaningful. I think this is why some people kind of idolise jobs in the development industry, uh, sector industry. Not quite right, is it? Uh, you know, working for the UN. I mean, that, that, that would count for something. Uh, but of course, for most of us, work is not like this. Uh, our jobs are not necessarily very meaningful most of the time, even if we believe in what our organisation is doing in some way or another. Our our day-to-day work often just seems vastly removed from that good. Uh, In fact, actually, many of those who work for stereotypically good causes also can't escape worries and doubts about whether what they're doing is really that useful after all. And so most of us, I think, look for other ways as well to kind of supplement our work or replace it to fulfill this longing, uh, this longing for to to contribute to something significant. Uh, Maybe, you know, we'll give money away. Maybe we'll support causes or join a movement, uh, maybe contribute to church. Or perhaps we'll put our efforts into something smaller. Maybe we'll invest in our family and our relationships our work for our family, our efforts for them, that is something significant, something that it will, be, it will have been worth our while to have worked at. We long for our efforts to be part of something significant. That's the first thing. But second also, I think we, we also long for transcendence. Uh, this one will perhaps take a little more persuading, but I think it's very much there for, for many of us. We long for transcendence. That is, we long to be taken out of ourselves, above ourselves, fulfilled by being kind of connected to something bigger than us. That's why we look for experiences that lift us out of ourselves. Uh, Do you know the word ecstasy is a Greek word that means standing out of? Uh, The promise of this drug that is so dear to the heart of our culture is to take us out of ourselves in ecstatic bliss. That's what we're looking for when we let ourselves go at clubs and at concerts. It's what people are looking for in music uh, and extreme sports. Point Break taught us that a long time ago. Yeah, that is a great... Keanu, that was the one movie he really pulled off, I think, but anyway... It's also, though, this this desire for transcendence is also a big part of what we're looking for in sex. 
and in spiritual exploration. Sex is about a moment of transcendence in connection with someone else, another. Now, of course, it's always more complicated than that and it doesn't always work, but that's kind of part of what we're seeking there. Uh, In spirituality, too, we're, we're told... You know, we're told we're a highly scientific age, but it's also true that many people are kind of bizarrely open to almost any spiritual claim. Last week, I met a guy from L.A. uh, who's planted a church in Hollywood. Um, And he told me that people in his town, they believe in science and crystals. And he's, yeah, how do those go together? You know, but no, science, very scientific, but also crystals. Yeah, we believe in them as well. Newtown is not that different from that sometimes. Um, there are other far more serious and respectable forms of this. Actually, many people around here pursue some kind of spiritual experience in a very disciplined, thoughtful way uh, through meditation, books, teachers, in all sorts of ways, actually. We long for transcendence. What what, what should we make of these longings? If you're persuaded they're there, I don't know if you are, but if you are, what should we make of them? Our desire to contribute to something and our desire for transcendence. It's actually a bit unnerving naming them like this because it can make you see how fragile and uncertain our, our attempts to fulfill them really are. It doesn't take much to start to feel like actually there's no way we are ever going to succeed in meeting these longings. On the one hand, you see, everything that we might work for is constantly in danger of being undermined. We might work for something good and noble, some cause, some organisation, but then it collapses things fall apart. We might desperately devote ourselves to our family only to be devastated by sickness or by accident or our children's terrible decisions or something. You know, we we cannot shore our efforts up against chance. And we can't shore them up against death. We can't protect our work from disintegration. And on the other hand, our efforts towards transcendence are, to be honest, really often very unsuccessful. We might achieve bliss that lasts a moment, but then we're left with mess and guilt and the ruin of our bodies and the expense. Transcendence is expensive and it doesn't last. And our spiritual searchings so rarely take us to something truly satisfying. So often, at the end of them, we just find someone else's ego or our own ideas recast in some different form that we didn't recognize when we started. We have these longings and they're deep in us, but it is entirely unclear that we are going to be able to fulfill them. And so, you know, you wonder whether maybe it would be better for us just to learn to live a little kind of flatter a little less aspirationally, and just to learn not to long for these things and to embrace a kind of more cynical stance on human life where we just don't hope for quite so much. 
But we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that because the Bible tells us that we are right to long for these things. That transcendence and meaningful work, they are actually what we're made for, what we are meant to want. And more than this, the Bible shows us that actually these are things we can have through Jesus Christ. The place we're going to see this tonight, though, is perhaps an odd place. It's the conclusion of the book of Exodus, the story of the building of the tabernacle. Uh, that, as I said, may seem a bit weird, but just stay with it, okay? Because this story about the building of the tabernacle, what it does is give us this kind of incredible lens through which to see Jesus in a new light. Uh, this is our last sermon on Exodus, uh, and it's a great place to finish. If you are with us last week, what we had was we looked at chapters 32 to 34, and we had this story basically of horrible failure, where as the people of Israel wait for Moses, and he's up on the mountain for 40 days, they decide to do something else, and they work to make something horrible. They make a golden calf, which is everything about what God didn't want them to do. It represents the exact opposite of what they were called to. But because of God's grace, it's, it's not the end of the story. And God's grace to the people in not destroying them, it releases them this week to serve him and to build the tabernacle, to work in the service of something wonderful. And it leads to a moment of profound fulfillment, transcendence even. So have a look at it. It'd be great. Uh, you really need to have a Bible uh, before you or be able to see one. I'll read the passages, but if you've got one there, that would be great. We're going to actually look at 15 chapters of Exodus, um, but the sermon will not be kind of correspondingly long, so don't worry. We'll begin at Exodus 25, though. Uh, we need to go back behind where we were last week, uh, because while Moses was up on the mountain, what, what he was receiving were the instructions for the tabernacle. Have a look back at chapter 25. This is page 78. Chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses up on the mountain, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. And then he outlines the offering. And then have a look at, down at verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. The people are to make a tabernacle, which is basically a really nice tent, um, by which God says he will dwell with them. And they have to make it exactly according to the instructions. And then what follows in the next five chapters is the instructions. And they are, they are given in great detail with measures, you know, the materials to be used, modes of building, everything. Uh, we're not going to read them all. To sum up, though, I think we've got a picture. Can we go on the screen? This is an, a kind of schematic of the finished tabernacle. Basically, there's three bits. Uh, there's the outer court, and then uh, that's kind of the, the least holy area. And then you move into the holy place. That's the bit where the high priest goes to do his stuff, and it had some special... Uh, tabernacle furniture 
uh, a table which had bread on it, a special lampstand, uh, and then an altar of incense, uh, that the purpose of which was to fill the Holy of Holies with smoke. And then you had a curtain, that orange wavy line is a curtain, into what was the, the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, uh, inside which, um, the yellow bit with the bars, inside which was a box called the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it was entirely made of gold, um, and it had a lid on it. It was basically a box with, with the tablets of the covenant. And then on the lid, it had a lid with two cherubim made of gold, which are kind of like angelic figures, we think, facing each other with this space between them. Right? It's not very big. It's about that big, the ark. Um, and the cherubim on the top of the ark face each other, and there's a space between them. And in that space, that space was the point at which God would be present within the universe. Have a look down at verse 22 of chapter 25. Verse 22, There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all of my commands for the Israelites. See, the tabernacle, the whole tabernacle was basically a way of putting the right brackets around this very special space, uh, demarcating, marking out the place in which God would become present within the created universe. Wow. It's a remarkable thing, if you think about it, what God is saying he's doing here. Um, it was also incredibly beautiful. In the world of the ancient Near East, right, this was an incredibly beautiful, ornate artifact, pure gold, perfectly made. We heard in the reading about Bazalel, these, these master craftsmen who are given to do the work. Um, there's incredibly ornate instructions for how things are to be built uh, and how you know, the curtains are to be embroidered out of the, the, exactly the right kind of fabric. Have a look at chapter 25, verse 34, uh, just to give a sense of this, the description of the lampstand. Chapter 25, verse 34, page 79. And on the lampstand there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and branches shall be all of one piece with the lampstand hammered out of pure gold. I mean, this was beautiful, beautiful artistry. In the following chapters, you get more instructions, and you also get instructions for uh, the priests, and particularly what the priests are meant to wear. Have a look over at chapter 28. Just flip over some of the instructions. Chapter 28. Um, Aaron's garments are introduced. Aaron is the high, going to be the high priest. Um, verse 2 of chapter 28, Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as priest. And then you get the instructions for the garments. And they're incredibly beautiful. If you look down at verse 15, you get this a description of a, the, the breast piece he's to wear. And it's meant to be fashioned out of the most perfect things and on it are to be set 
This is um, verse 17. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. In the first row there shall be a ruby, a topaz, and a beryl. In the second row, a turquoise, sapphire, and an emerald. Third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. You know, it's just this kind of elaborate instructions for this beautiful thing. Um, it's also incredibly dangerous. It's one of the funny things. This is said a few times, but have a look down at verse 35 of chapter 28. Chapter 28, this is talking about um, uh, part of the robe, which Aaron's to wear, and it's got bells on it. Uh, and verse 35 says, Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. You know, it, that's kind of intense, isn't it? This is said a number of times. You've got to get this exactly right, otherwise he'll die. But it, it, it kind of draws your attention to the fact that what is happening here is pretty full on. The holy God is coming so close to people that they can almost touch him. You know, and that's dangerous. This is the God who until now has been just like a, pill, a fire and smoke on the mountain. He is coming into the tent. In chapter 29, this theme is continued, and it, it describes the rituals for the ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests, and basically they involve sacrifice. Animals have to be sacrificed to make atonement, to cleanse them. It's all a bit weird for us, of course, but, you know, and, and the blood has to be taken and put on their earlobes and all sorts of things and smeared in places so that their sin is dealt with so that they're able to be there in the presence of the Holy God. And then finally, just flip over to chapter 29, verse 43. We get reminded of what all this is about. Um, verse 42, uh, and then down in verse 44. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then... I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. This is what the whole Exodus was about. So that God could draw near and dwell among his people. This is why it's so dangerous. God is coming close by building this tabernacle that is a carefully circumscribed space in which God can be with them. Now, as we saw last week, though, all these instructions are almost useless uh, at first because while Moses is getting the instructions, the people completely stuff it up. Uh, they build, instead of building a tabernacle, they build a golden calf. Instead of building a space, an empty space in which God will be present, they build a statue in which their own ideas of God can be present. But God is merciful, as we saw last week, and he gives them yet another chance. And so in the final chapters of Exodus, flipping over now to chapter 35, what we get is the account of the building work. Now, when you read this stuff... It's pretty laborious. The instructions, as we've seen some of them, they were incredibly detailed, and now we get them all over again. 
Right, look, for example, at chapter 38, verse 17. Um, you know, it's describing the building. And it says, The bases for the posts were bronze. The hooks and bands of the posts were silver, and their tops were overlaid with silver, so all the posts of the courtyard had silver bands. You know, it's exactly the same detail that we had before. It's the same with the lampstand. You know, it talks about how it built it with the buds, and you got all the detail is gone over again. Why? Why couldn't we just hear, and so they built it, just like we heard about in those five chapters? It's a way to slow you down. It slows you down. See, Exodus is such a racy beginning. It's so fast-paced, it's action-packed, and then suddenly it's like, whoom. And you get this endless description of the building of this tent. But it's a reminder that this is something important. And it's also a reminder that they did it as God said. They followed the instructions exactly. Because you see, it's clear that what, what is burdensome reading for us was actually a total delight for the people of Israel. It was a great joy. Uh, here we go back to our reading from chapter 35. I don't know if you noticed it on the way through. But, you know, the time comes to build the tabernacle, right? And Moses asks for an offering of materials, and the people just respond with, with joy. Verse 20 of chapter 35, Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. This is just after, after he's asked them for the offering. And everyone whose heart was willing, whose heart moved him, came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting and all its service and for all the sacred garments. And then down to verse 29, all the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. It's a moment of just gratitude and delight. It's also a moment in which the people get to use their skills. Uh, Bezalel and Aholiab are appointed, as we saw, as the master craftsmen who can oversee this work, God has given them these incredible skills in artistry and for teaching others. And this is such a joy that the people just overwhelm them with offerings so that they have to stop working to get Moses to stop the people from offering their gold. You know, this is a remarkable moment, isn't it? They, they can't give away enough of their precious stuff to this project. The building of the tabernacle, you see, is a moment of release. God's commands free the people to do something good, something special, and to do it together. They use their different abilities and possessions in a work of cooperative endeavor that they can have no doubts about the value of. It's a wonderful moment. And then at the end, they present it to Moses. Have a look at the end of chapter 39, verse 42. Sorry for all the flipping, but it's worth it, I think. Verse 42 of chapter 39, page 95. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. And then Moses sets it up. Uh, in the last chapter of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, uh, we get 
we hear again twice about the tabernacle and the shape of it. First, God commands Moses how to set it up, and then we get told Moses set it up just like this. You know, do you get now? This is important. You know, this, this is the shape. This is what it looked like. But then finally, right at the very end of Exodus, the very last bit, over the next page, the tabernacle goes live, so to speak. Have a look at verse 33. Actually, that's just, be, just, just at the bottom of page 95. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard, and so Moses finished the work. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. Wow. Wow. You see, this is what was about. God being with them. God being with them. Actually with them. Actually there. Leading them. But you know, all this, magnificent though it was, was only a faint shadow of something far greater. A faint shadow. The tabernacle marked out this special empty space in which God would be present, but the time was coming when God would be present not in an empty space, but in a person. We heard about it in our New Testament reading from John chapter 1, which you may like to turn to. It's on page 1049. The Word, said John, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. In verse 14 there, the word for made his dwelling, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word means literally tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. And it was a glory greater than the fire and smoke. It was the glory of the one and only, the Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, in Jesus Christ, God has dwelt among us more profoundly, more intimately, more perfectly than ever he did in the tabernacle. Which is why in him, you see, God has become knowable in a much deeper way. No one has ever seen God, said John. And he was thinking about the tabernacle, you know. God's there, but you haven't really seen him. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. 
Do you get what an astonishing thing has happened to the world in Jesus Christ? God, the God who made the world and whose holy presence is so dangerous for us, has become present in a person. A person who can be approached, known, conversed with, touched, who could be held, kissed, befriended, seen. That's what God has given us in Jesus Christ, himself, to be with us, to be known by us. Here is the heart of everything about Christianity. The claim that God has made himself knowable in this special place, this person. And that is the reason why we may hope for a fulfilment of our deepest longings. For you see, what we have been given in Jesus is both the path to true transcendence and the redemption of our work. Let me explain. True transcendence, you see, is found in knowing and loving God. That is what we truly long for, to be united to God. Everything else is just a shadow of that. We were made to relate to and to be joined to God. And that is made possible in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, God has made a place where we can meet him and be with him and not die. That sounds rather dramatic, but it's serious. We saw that, that with the tabernacle, this great danger hung over the whole thing because God is a holy God and we are not holy. And so the tabernacle and Aaron had to be cleansed with blood of sacrifices. Atonement had to be made. But in Jesus, God has made a way for us to be with him and live. Because of, wonderfully, Jesus is not just tabernacle, he is priest and sacrifice as well. He offered his own life as a sacrifice of atonement for us to deal with our sin, to cleanse us so that we can be with him and be with God. And when he rose from the dead, which he did, by the way, when he rose from the dead, it was the guarantee that now the way has been opened for us to be with God. Atonement has been made once and for all. By his death, Jesus has made a way for us to be united to the holy God and live. That's true transcendence, to know God through Jesus Christ. Now, our experience of that won't necessarily feel like we assume it should. Knowing God through Jesus will not mostly be what we would perhaps naturally think of as transcendent. There are two reasons for that. First, the first reason is that what Jesus gives us is not our idea of transcendence. Now, he gives us the real thing. And the real thing is different to our idea. We have all sorts of ideas about what transcendence might and should look like, and you know what? They're confused. Our images of transcendence actually are very often deeply selfish. 
They're about feelings, feelings of peace and pleasure for us. Jesus gives us something very different. He offers us actual relationship with the living God. With a God who is other than us and who is in many ways strange and, and, and foreign and who is not comfortable. But that's what real transcendence is, isn't it? Being taken out of yourself. But there's another reason for why our, our experience of faith in Jesus is not necessarily what we think of as transcendence, and that is that our experience of union with God is not, is not complete yet. Actually, it won't be complete until Jesus returns to make all things new. We aren't given everything in the present. We await a fulfillment, a time when we will, as the Bible says, see him face to face. When we will be known as we are known. There is a promise. We're not yet at the time of consummation. We are more, if I can put it this way, we're in the engagement period. Actually, the Bible doesn't hesitate to use marriage imagery of, of what will happen. We're in an engagement period, and this time is a little frustrating. We await a fulfillment. We await a fulfillment, but it will come. They will see his face, says the book of Revelation, and his name will be on their foreheads. Through faith in Jesus, the way is opened to true transcendence that will surpass any bliss we can possibly imagine or experience here and now. But not just to transcendence, also, and this is the last thing I want to say this evening, also to our other great longing, to be a part of something that matters. Jesus, of course, Jesus does not need our help to be the true tabernacle. Right? He can do it all on his own. In fact, he has. But you know what? He invites us in. He invites us to be a part of it. All the same. The Bible actually uses the language of tabernacle and its successor, temple, to describe the life of wit and witness of Christians and the church. Uh, listen to, we've got it on the screen, how Paul speaks in Ephesians. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Jesus has become the cornerstone of a new work that we can be a part of. And more than that, that we actually are invited to, to work for, to participate in. Just a little later in Ephesians, Paul says this. He speaks of how every part in this new project, this new building, or now he uses the image of a body, has a part to play. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We're invited to be a part of something genuinely, perfectly, wonderfully meaningful. Now, what work is he talking about there, as each part does its work? 
What work is he talking about there? Is he just, you know, affirming all work? I don't think quite that's the way to go. What he means is it's the part we've been given to play in God's new project. It means especially our service to other believers as part of the Christian community. There's no getting around the fact that Paul is talking about the church here. He's, speaking about, he's talking about speaking the truth to one another in love. But, you know, the church Paul is talking about is not simply, I don't think, the local church. Uh, although it is at least that, right? I think if you ever find yourself thinking that local church not important, you know, the real stuff is happening elsewhere, I think you're on the wrong track. It's a good indicator. But there is more to say. In Christ Jesus, you see, all of us, each one of us is given good works to do. As part of God's new project, his new people in all the world, because of Jesus, Paul says elsewhere, because of Jesus, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That is what we long for, labor that is not in vain. Because so much of our work is in vain. Now that's not just a blanket affirmation that if you're a Christian, everything you do matters. Actually, it's not quite like that. I think it's more a claim about the way in which we are now free to work. The way, the way in which we are now free to put our efforts into things. All of us have been given work to do as part of God's new tabernacle project. And it is work that will last. That death and decay cannot touch because Jesus is raised from the dead. And through faith in Jesus, we may now give ourselves to and play a part in something that really matters. When the people of Israel were invited to play their part in the tabernacle, they responded with just pure joy. For they understood that here was a chance for them to be a part of something wonderful and good and true, through which they could be joined to the living God. Brothers and sisters, do you see that something far greater is offered to you through Jesus Christ? In him, we are invited to give our efforts to an even greater project, God's new tabernacle founded on his perfect son, through which he is building a new world that one day we will experience in all its fullness and in a fulfillment that surpasses everything and that is everything we are made for. What more could any of us possibly desire? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the gift of the tabernacle to the people Israel and much more than this for what it pointed us to. The presence of your Son among us, that you might be with us and we might be with you. And we ask for the faith to delight in him and come to him and find in him the fulfillment of our deepest longings. And we ask it for his glory. 
Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.